Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The idea when I started FRDH in September 2016 was to take what I had learned as a journalist writing the first rough draft of history for 30 years and apply those lessons to a wide range of current events. Then Donald Trump was elected president a few weeks later, and too much of what I was compelled to write about was shaped in reaction to him. This 2017 roundup will follow suit. I would love to have time to talk about Brexit and the Middle East, but this podcast will be a long listen, and adding to it would try your patience. The focus has to be on America. This was a year of epochal change, unique because the change was not brought about by war, economic collapse, or revolution. The themes of 2017 identified themselves over Trump's inauguration weekend, starting January 20th. I was in Washington, D.C. to make my fourth documentary for the BBC in 12 months on the resistible rise of Donald Trump to the White House and to provide some copy for the Observer newspaper in London. It was a strange weekend, tinged with personal echoes of the past. Thirty-six years ago, the last time an entertainer was sworn in as president, I was living in D.C. I remember a similar air of unwillingness to believe among my friends that Ronald Reagan was about to become president. It was the horrible confirmation that the country in which we, the children of victory, had grown up was not liberal at all, but was actually very, very right-wing. I was just starting out in journalism in 1981, working as a copy aide in the style section of the Washington Post, and I remember the reporters going out in their formal attire to report the gossip from the balls and parties where the Reagan's Hollywood pals were entertaining, Frank Sinatra and the like. I expected similar scenes of excess for Trump. There were none. Parties were minimal. The private jet traffic jam the Post reported on in 1981 was not remarked. I got down to the mall early on Inauguration Day, expecting crowds similar to those that had turned out for Reagan. I made my way through surprisingly empty streets to the Washington Monument. Vendors of inaugural tat confirmed the evidence of my eyes. The crowd, they said, was small. I listened intently to Trump's speech, expecting the usual cliches of unity and congratulation to the whole American family about our wonderful system of free government and the blessings of democracy. Trump never said the word democracy once. My piece for the Observer began, This was real. This was not a nightmare from which you could force yourself awake. This is real, because within seconds the new president had shredded the framework through which his predecessors had viewed the world and interpreted America's role in it for the last three-quarters of a century. That is one of the themes of the year. What is real anymore in America? The next day I returned to the mall for the Women's March. The empty spaces that had greeted Trump were packed. I met a friend, his wife and three-year-old daughter, and we waded into the mosh pit, pushing the toddler in her stroller. The energy was extraordinary joyous, so many women coming together to say that the man who had just been elected by a quirk in the rules formulated 230 years earlier was illegitimate in their eyes. They were astonished by their own accomplishment of getting, if not a million women, to Washington, then damn near that number. A few days before the gathering, I had posted a podcast called I Ain't Marchin' Anymore. 
Well, you can listen to it in the archive section at the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com. I took a fairly cynical view of the whole enterprise. If marching changed anything, it would be illegal, to paraphrase Emma Goldman. But in this crowd, it was impossible to maintain that cynicism. There was energy to build a powerful movement in this march. And that was the other great theme of the year. Women demanding respect and an equal place in the power structure. My friend is a retired army officer, and we've both been in large crowds when bad things have happened. Nothing bad was going to happen in this situation, but neither of us felt happy to be in a crowd this size. We took his daughter and made our way back to his home on Capitol Hill and flicked on the news. Sean Spicer, Trump's press secretary, was excoriating journalists for lying about the size of the inaugural crowd. It was one of the biggest in history, he claimed. The photographic evidence proved the reality was otherwise. It was a bizarre performance that inspired comic sketches for months, but the Spicer show underscored both themes of this year. By denigrating the size of the Women's March and blatantly lying about Trump's inaugural crowd, what is real? What is real now in America? Trump and his various press secretaries, Spicer was ultimately fired, challenged the very notion of a fact-based, mutually acknowledged reality, which is essential for creating a stable society. Two days later, I was in Cleveland, having lunch with some Democratic-supporting businessmen I had met by chance while covering the campaign. They introduced me to a friend, Mansfield Frazier, an African-American entrepreneur with a strong streak of faith or stubbornness. He has started a vineyard in Huff, Cleveland's best-known ghetto neighborhood. If you know Cleveland's climate and its streets, you know that making wine in Huff is like electing a Democrat to the Senate from Alabama. It can happen, but it takes an extraordinary combination of circumstances and a bit of luck. Fraser Mansfield said two things that helped to understand this year. First, white women voted their race over their gender. This was a reference to the exit polling that showed more than half of white women in America voted for Trump rather than Hillary Clinton. The second thing was, Trump voters will never admit to buyer's remorse. I drove south from Cleveland, over the Ohio River into West Virginia, through the mountains, listening to the radio stations that Trump voters listen to, Christian Broadcasting Network mostly. Frazier's insights foreshadowed everything I heard. Most of the hosts of these programs were white women. They despised Hillary Clinton and voiced fairly unchristian sentiments about the women on the march. The frankly ridiculous claims about the size of the inauguration crowds were elided over. If the president said something, made it so. Mockery of other sources of news went beyond the jokey. It was vicious and dismissive. West Virginia is a beautiful place, and I caught a break with the weather. I drove the back roads down the valleys and up and over snow-covered hilltops. The sky was cobalt. The topography and the radio made me think of central Bosnia and how the Balkan Wars started. A sustained campaign of nationalist propaganda by Radio Belgrade under the control of Serbian leader Slobodan Milosevic destroyed the social fabric that had been woven over 40 years in post-war Yugoslavia. 
It led to a civil war that ruined Bosnia's unique, multi-sectarian, multi-ethnic society. It only took six months of this concentrated propaganda to undo all those decades. In America, Fox News, Christian News, and before them right-wing talk radio had been spreading their propaganda for a quarter of a century. The reality these broadcast entities had created for their audience was hermetically sealed. No other facts could poke through. The performance of Sean Spicer about the inaugural crowds, the rant of Trump at the CIA against journalists on the day of the Women's March, were not reported as bizarre or embarrassing as it was for more than half the country. This segment of American society was thoroughly propagandized. But unlike in totalitarian or authoritarian regimes, this was an act of free will. 2017 revealed that more than a third of American society is self-propagandized. Reason and logic, built on a factual account of the world, has no purchase there. I returned to the U.S. in April to do a little further reporting for the documentary on the first hundred days of the Trump regime. Nothing had changed on the Trump team side. The tweeting, the warmongering, the daily humiliation of this or that cabinet official, the appointment of a special prosecutor to look into the Russia connections, the courts overturning his travel ban on people from seven Muslim countries. Nothing could shake the unswayable support of his voters. Unpresidential behavior? That's why they voted for him. I took a break from the madness. Well, I have to earn a living. Flew to Beirut to make a documentary about attacks on medical facilities and war zones. It also streams at the website, by the way. Marked the bitter irony that even half a decade ago, these shocking attacks would have been leading the news. But now they don't even get a paragraph or news spot. The America revealed by Trump's election and his behavior in office is the biggest story in the world. By the time I refocused on America in early August, I had lost touch with the pulse. I tried to find it on Twitter. Maybe that was a mistake. The social network had grown more frantic. Outrage, outrage, outrage. It was like outrage had become a form of eroticism. Makes me feel so good to feel so outraged. The outrage was about Trump. Couldn't a supporter see the damage he was doing? And what about the Republicans in Congress? How long would they tolerate this disgraceful behavior? People in mainstream media, reporters I read daily in the New York Times and elsewhere, were spending as much time on Twitter pointing out the contradictions and hypocrisies of Trump's actions as reporting the day's events. Well, it was easy. Trump has been communicating on Twitter for so long, his tweets echo Newtonian physics. For every tweet, there is an equal and opposite tweet. August seemed to boil over with news. The Charlottesville outrage, the sacking of Trump's dark angel, Steve Bannon, plummeting approval ratings, the failure to overturn the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, the steady drip of information about the Russia connection, the outrage and glee with which this was reported on Twitter and in the mainstream media made it seem like the end was nigh for this most unsuitable president. Towards the end of the month, I took my family back to the U.S. for the first time since my parents died a decade ago. Long-planned vacation, pure and simple. I brought my recording equipment with me. I had an understanding with the BBC's commissioning editor that if, as seemed very possible from the news, Trump was forced out, I would stay on and make one more documentary.
within 24 hours of landing in New York, it became clear to me that nothing was going to happen. Not just because much of America was on vacation, but because if you knew how to look at the society, you could see that Trump had lost none of his support. Buried inside the frantic tweets about Trump's cratering approval ratings was this unassailable fact. The 35 to 38 percent of the country that supported him in November 2016 were still on side. As Mansfield Fraser had said four days after inauguration, there was no buyer's remorse among the Trumpers. America has changed a lot over the last quarter of a century, which is why it was possible for Trump to win the White House. Once in office, Trump returned the favor by changing America. Most of all, he changed those who were against him. Back in prehistory, when the second President Bush was prematurely swaggering about victory in Iraq, his dark angel, Karl Rove, told the New York Times, we create our own reality. Liberals, here defined as all those who didn't vote for Bush, and a lot of people who did, shook their heads at Rove's arrogance. This group proclaimed it was part of the reality-based community. And as Nemesis followed hubris, and Iraq and then the economy disintegrated on Bush's watch, this group congratulated itself for sticking with factual reality. But this same group was now ignoring facts and indulging in magical thinking. Trump wasn't going anywhere, no matter what was proclaimed on Twitter and in the opinion columns of the mainstream media. Wishful or magical thinking is not reality-based thinking. And that is how Trump had changed his opponents. And it's one of the most important aspects of 2017 in America. The anti-Trump forces oscillated between magical thinking and utter paranoia, all amplified on Twitter. I'm not talking about those of us in the mosh pit, we ordinary folks. You know, we're entitled to our paranoia. But I'm talking about those with platforms, thought leaders, as they are called, tenured professors, founders of new news websites with corporate backing, shrieking that this is the weekend that Trump will start a nuclear war with North Korea. And when that doesn't happen, waiting a few weeks and shrieking it again, never stopping to think for a minute that really... There are other state actors in the world, and that perhaps China, whose capital Beijing is a mere 500 miles from Pyongyang, might have something to say about a nuclear war, or even a conventional war taking place on its doorstep. That's one example. There are others. Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller is about to be fired as a staple. Comes up every few weeks, spread not by conspiracy theorists, but by professors at prestigious law schools. And every time their predictions turn out to be wrong, do they then tweet, I was wrong, here's why? Newspapers at least print corrections when they make a mistake. This is all part of what's called the hashtag resistance. Most of those journal pundits with Twitter, reporters have become their own commentators. Leading their followers into panic and magical thinking are the same people who missed the rise of Trump. The journal pundits reported at length about how little Trump accomplished. Obamacare is still in place. And even here they were wrong. Politico website ran a weekly feature called Five Things Trump Did This Week While You Weren't Looking. It's a very useful guide to what's actually happening in his presidency, and the reality-based community should read that feature more regularly. And as 2017 came around into its final quarter, 
the beautiful energy of the Women's March turned inward. The titanic piggery of Harvey Weinstein was exposed in the New York Times, and for two months, men in the news media and Hollywood, businesses allegedly dominated by liberals, or dominated by alleged liberals, were forced from their positions by accusations of sexual harassment. Hashtag Me Too replaced hashtag resistance. The trends of the year that manifested themselves at Trump's inauguration weekend crystallized in the second week of December. On Tuesday, the 12th, Doug Jones, a Democrat, narrowly won a Senate seat in Alabama. On Friday the 15th, the Joint House and Senate bill, cutting taxes for corporations and the wealthiest people in the U.S., was passed. The first event, a rare and genuine moment to celebrate for people who are against the Trump regime, brought forth instead recriminations. You owe us, white people. Don't expect us to keep saving your asses, one African-American queer activist tweeted, to which the first reaction has to be, well... Where were you in November 2016, when our asses really needed saving from Trump, out having a cigarette and a beer? We cannot continue to be your sword and shield, tweeted another black woman, an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, where it wasn't racial gloating, it was gendered. Women did it. Men had nothing to do with the victory. How about a coalition of decency did it, led by the reporters of the Washington Post, who broke the story about the Republican candidate Roy Moore's detestable history of preying on underage girls in shopping malls. And while all this female energy was going into finger-pointing and making arguments that were only heard by people who were more or less already in agreement, the Congress passed the tax bill. Two things can be said with certainty about this bill. It will exacerbate the economic inequality that underlies so much of the social disintegration in the U.S., and it will increase the deficit. The Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, said he would deal with increased deficits by cutting Social Security and Medicaid. And who will suffer most when that happens? That's right. Women and black people. And inside the tax bill is a provision that strips the core of Obamacare away. The Republicans couldn't overturn the legislation in August, so they gutted it in December. Slow death is still death. Whose victory was greater in that second week of December 2017? The year of liberal magical thinking limped to a close. The hashtag MeToo fever began to die down. Senator Al Franken had been forced to resign at its height for being a butt-grabber, The Me Too crowd demanded that Trump resign as well. This is how we Democrats deal with harassers. We demand Republicans do the same with President Trump. What reality do they inhabit? And that is what the story of 2017 has been. What Trump has done to the liberal-left progressive reality-based community twisted it into a mirror image of the Trump forces, but with considerably less unity. Well... That's a grim summary. Sorry. Let me leave you with something optimistic, or as optimistic as I get, a theory of what might happen in 2018. The Trump relationship to the Republican Party was always transactional. The GOP wanted their tax cuts for corporations and the ultra-rich, and they worked with Trump to get them. They ignored his bullying and his insults. The transaction now is done. Congressional politicians, particularly those who rise to positions of leadership, 
have long memories. Trump's insults and humiliations won't be forgotten. There may well be a moment in 2018 when all of that comes back on him, maybe with Special Prosecutor Mueller's report, maybe when the early polling data on the midterm elections shows a lot of the GOP Congress people they're going to lose their place on the gravy train. Trump might yet be forced from office in an unprecedented way. As you can see, I'm not immune to a bit of magical thinking myself. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're visiting, you can make a donation. And best wishes for 2018 to all of you who've listened this far. Thanks.